I hope people understand that clean energy momentum is real, that things are happening, that they're happening all across the states, that this is really an incredible time. We're going places we've never been before. It's an amazing transformation to watch. Welcome to Got Science, the podcast from the Union of Concerned Scientists. I'm your host, Colleen MacDonald. I'm here with my friend and colleague, John Rogers. And today we're talking about renewable energy. And stay with us after the interview for Sidelining Science by Katie Love. In March, President Trump issued an executive order that empowers EPA Administrator Scott Pruitt to undo the Clean Power Plan. This was an all-out attack on climate policy. The Clean Power Plan is a set of standards requiring power plants nationally to reduce their carbon emissions. Basically, it directs power plants to stop burning so many fossil fuels and to turn to cleaner, renewable energy. The process of completely dismantling the Clean Power Plan is complicated, but from where we stand at UCS, we can't count on the plan being effective anymore. And that's a shame. The plan was one of the best ways to meet our goals for cutting emissions under the Paris Agreement. You know that deal where nearly all the countries in the world pledged to keep the global temperature increase under two degrees? Without the Clean Power Plan, most energy wonks and scientists predict it'll be much harder to meet those goals. But there is a ray of hope, and it might just be shining from South Dakota. Many states, including some you might not think of as clean energy leaders, have made significant progress in switching to renewable energy resources like wind and solar, helping homes and businesses be more energy efficient and making electric vehicles a reality, even before the Clean Power Plan was signed and even today. Don't get us wrong, we still desperately need federal leadership on renewable energy, but we have to take our good news where we can find it these days. And today, the good news is that momentum towards clean energy is showing up in some surprising places. Here to discuss what is hopefully the inevitable march towards clean energy everywhere is John Rogers, a senior energy analyst at the Union of Concerned Scientists. John is an engineer by training and an expert on renewable energy technologies like solar and wind power. He's co-author of the book Cooler Smarter, Practical Steps for Low Carbon Living, and he's the lead analyst on a new UCS study that ranks states on their movement to renewables. John, thanks for being with us. Thanks, Colleen. Great to be with you. So clean energy is on the rise, but we find ourselves at a moment when the administration in Washington, D.C. wants to take us back in the direction of fossil fuel. Can you give us a quick lay of the land in terms of the feasibility of a transition to clean energy? You bet, Colleen. Uh, and I love the way you put it about the march toward clean energy. I would say this is maybe a sprint. We're at an, a really different place from where we were a decade ago or even a few years ago on clean energy. If you look at the scale of activity, if you look at the costs of key options for, uh, for, for clean energy, if you look at the business models that are out there to make it accessible to people in all walks of life, this is an incredible time for clean energy. Tell me a little bit, you mentioned the cost. Just give me an idea, 10 years ago, what was the cost compared to what it is now, say for solar panels? 
Well, and let's look at uh, solar. So if you go from 2009 to 2015 for residential solar, so solar on homes, the cost has dropped in half. If you look at wind power, we've had a, the cost has come down by two thirds over less than a decade. So it really is incredible. The array of options that we have available to us uh, in terms of renewable energy, in terms of energy efficiency, in terms of other ways that we are moving toward clean energy. Great. So that makes it more affordable for the average person. That's right. And part of this is just improvements in the technology. A big part of this is scale, that we've had this virtuous cycle of the you know early adopters that drive more technology development that leads to more innovation, that leads to more policies. And it just goes round and round in a, in a beautiful way, really. So you've just released an analysis looking at the state's progress with clean energy. Give us the good, the bad, and the ugly. Tell us about it. Uh, I'd have to say it's all good, Colleen. There's nothing bad or ugly about it. Uh, This is what we call the UCS Clean Energy Momentum State Ranking. What we wanted to do with this analysis was look at state leadership in this incredible transition to a clean electricity future. We know that the federal government plays an important role. We know that towns and cities do important things, that businesses, but what we wanted to look at specifically with this analysis was who's driving this in terms of the states? What states can we thank for creating the clean energy momentum that we see around us? And what states can we point other states to? So if they're looking for leadership, where is that coming from? If they're looking for examples of leadership. What we were studying was really not just renewable energy sources like solar and wind and geothermal, but energy efficiency as a key component of clean energy, and even electrification of transportation. So if you think about electric vehicles as a key part of cleaning up what's happening in the transportation sector. So this analysis really studied all those pieces. What surprised you most about what you found? So I'm not sure it surprised me, but I think a lot of people would be surprised by this result, is that the clean energy momentum isn't coming just from blue states. A lot of the top performers in the different metrics are red states. Four of the top 10 states overall are headed by Republican governors. Uh, Wind power is largely a rural thing, so there's a strong relationship there with more conservative states. So when you put it together, you see that there's leadership coming from sort of across the political spectrum. Another thing that was surprising was the diverse ways that states got onto the leaderboard in our state ranking. California is tops overall, but it was the actual top in only one of the 12 metrics. Vermont was the only state to be tops in two metrics and made 10 top 10 appearances overall. Some states made it into the top 10 without being tops in any of the metrics. One other thing that surprised me was energy equity. We were looking at how much states are not just making the transition, not just putting up solar panels and, and wind farms, but are bringing everybody along. So how, how, what does this mean for the people, communities of color, low-income populations that have been most negatively affected by the way we've tended to make electricity? So they live closer to coal plants or they're more exposed to the pollution. We had a hard time quantifying that across the 50 states. A lot of the metrics have equity dimensions, but it's something we really wanted to hit more head on and and just couldn't figure out a way to do that. 
So before we get into the state rankings, how did you actually go about doing this analysis? What we were interested in capturing was momentum. So not just where states are now, but where they've come from and where they're headed. And we also wanted to keep it pretty simple, easy to understand, easy to communicate. What we used for this analysis was a dozen metrics that look at technical aspects. So how much of a state's electricity generation is coming from renewable energy? How quickly has that changed? What's it look like in the near term in terms of what they're building? Energy efficiency, so looking at what state policies are doing for helping people, helping homes and businesses do more with less, uh, looking at electric vehicles. We also want to capture direct visible impacts on people's lives. So we looked at jobs and we looked at pollution, power sector pollution. And we want to look at the future. So we looked at policies. What are states doing to really set the stage for continued movement in the direction of clean energy? So I would imagine the latest rollback of the clean power plan is probably going to impact the states greatly. What do you see there? Well, actually, what we're finding is that there is so much action at the level of the states. States are already doing a lot of the things that the clean power plan would have required them to do. States are already getting rid of coal. They're already switching to cleaner fuels. They're already building wind and solar and other renewable energy. They're already doing energy efficiency, not because the federal government told them to, but because these things just make sense. Can we talk for a minute about energy efficiency? It's not shiny new technology. It's like the runt of the litter. What are some energy efficiency jobs? Yeah, you're right. It's it's not the runt. It's sort of the 800-pound uh, gorilla, except that you can't see it. You know, you just it just doesn't show up as much. It's it's not as great a photo op, I guess. Uh, but it's it's an amazing thing. So we're talking about weatherizing homes and businesses, homes in particular, to make them more comfortable, to allow homeowners to save money. We're talking about making businesses operate more efficiently. If you think about swapping out motors or changing out the lighting, uh, whether that's a business or a home or an institution, a school, this is a terrific easy way to save money for a lot of people. Rumor has it you're afraid of heights, but that you recently climbed to the top of a wind turbine. What was that experience like? Well, just for the record, I'm not afraid of heights. I'm afraid of falling from heights. But <laughs> no, I, I'm actually, I have a healthy respect for heights. But this was something different. So this was going up a ladder inside the turbine tower, the wind turbine tower, going up to the top, and we're talking 280 feet up, and then climbing out on the very top. So nothing between me and the sky, but air. Uh, so it was an amazing experience, an amazing way, an amazing perspective on a key part of this clean energy transformation. How much, when you step out onto the top, how, how wide is it? So it's a maybe six feet wide and curved. So you've got a little bit of flattish part at the top where you can hang out. And, you know, and I was standing on top there, my feet tucked under some safety rails that were there and the safety harness on the whole time. So no danger of falling. And, and my mind knew that my body didn't always understand that. So fascinating. And uh, did you put a little super glue on the bottom uh, of your some, shoes? Something like that. Yeah, I think that's I think that's the way to handle it. <laughs> 
You're listening to Got Science, brought to you by the Union of Concerned Scientists. If you'd like to see John on top of that wind turbine, go to ucsusa.org slash John on Turbine. And don't forget, the People's Climate March is Saturday, April 29th. For more information, go to ucsusa.org slash march. Now let's hear some more from John. All right, so tell me uh, what you found in the analysis. Who are the big winners? So number one, I, I feel like there should be a drum roll here, but number one, California. And let me be clear that California is not number one because it's the biggest state. Every metric, every, every place where this came in, we normalize things. So we did it in terms of per capita. So having a larger population didn't help you because we divided by your population. Uh, we did things in terms of your local, as a percent of your in-state generation, electricity generation. So it, this California is not there because it's the largest state. California is there because it's a strong all-around performer in terms of almost every metric we looked at. Vermont's in second place and Massachusetts is in third. In general, the West Coast and the Northeast did well. That's not surprising. N- not surprising. Uh, but there were some surprising findings. So let me let me just go through the other okay. leaders. Uh, Rhode Island in fourth, Hawaii in fifth. You look at Oregon, Maine, Washington, New York. In the Midwest, Iowa was representing the Midwest in the top 10. Minnesota came in 12th. You had the Intermountain West with Colorado and Arizona in the top 15. Nevada's in there. So a pretty good swath across a lot of the country. So it- feels like it's happening everywhere. Certainly there were a lot of strong performances in different metrics uh, in a lot of places around the country. What we wanted to do with this analysis, what we certainly look at who the top performers are in each of the 12 metrics. What we focus on, what we think the focus should be on is the performers across the 12 metrics. So when you add up the scores for each of those, who's who's on top. And that's the list that you get where you see California, Vermont, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, Hawaii. A lot of surprising states finish number one in the different categories. Let's do a top 10 list of the number ones. Renewable energy generation. So you know I'm, I'm a scientist and I insist on all the, all the caveats. So just this is renewable energy generation as a percent of a state's total generation. Number one, South Dakota change in renewable energy generation. Number one, Kansas. New renewable energy capacity. So this is how much is a state building and how much of that is renewable energy. Number one, Wyoming. Residential solar. So how much residential solar per household? Number one, Hawaii. Energy savings. So how much are utility programs saving in each state? as a percent of overall electricity consumption. Number one, Rhode Island. Electric vehicle adoption. This one is no contest. As a percent of new car sales, California. Clean energy jobs. This one is really interesting. This is actually an amalgam of energy efficiency jobs per capita, solar energy jobs per capita, and wind energy jobs per capita. So 
Efficiency jobs, number one, Vermont. Solar jobs, number one, Nevada. Wind energy jobs, number one, North Dakota. When you put that all together, number one, Vermont. Power plant pollution reduction. So this is another amalgam. So we looked at three key pollutants, sulfur dioxide, nitrogen oxides, and carbon dioxide, and looked at how much of a state has dropped it and how much it has left per capita. So the top performing states overall are New Hampshire and South Dakota. Renewable electricity standards. So this, is, this metric is looking at how strong is a state's policy that is driving renewable energy from here to 2030. Number one, New York. Corporate renewable energy procurement. So this metric looks at how easy is it for businesses in a given state to get their hands on renewable energy, either contracting for it from a utility or a third party or putting it on their facilities. Number one, Iowa. Energy efficiency resource standards. So this is related to a key policy that states use to drive energy savings for homes and businesses. Number one, Massachusetts. And finally, global warming emission reduction targets. So this is looking a little bit beyond the electricity sector to look across the economy and say, how strong are the policies that states have to drive carbon reductions all through their economy? Number one, Vermont. What would you say to the states that, say, aren't in leadership positions? What can they do? Well, I would say to decision makers in those states, uh, look around you. If you care about jobs, clean energy means jobs. Wait, John, so renewables aren't killing jobs? No, not at all. If you look at clean energy in general, we're talking millions of jobs. That's a whole lot more than are in coal, than are in natural gas. I'll give you some, some numbers for that. Energy efficiency across the country is close to 2 million people close to 2 million people who work in energy efficiency. If you look at solar, solar had an incredible year last year. It's up to over 250,000 people working in solar. Wind power alone is more than 100,000 people. These are real jobs. That's a whole lot more jobs than are in the coal sector. So if you want to create jobs, and I think most people in elected positions do, clean energy is a great place to look. The other thing I would say is to look at is, you know, if you care about clean air and water, the power sector is a major contributor to it. And these technologies are major options for doing something about that. So for people in those states, contact your legislators. Our state ranking is great fodder for a message to them saying, I care about this. I care about our state being a leader. Look at what these states, look at what our neighboring states are doing. Look what these others are doing. Sounds like we're very close to a tipping point on clean energy. What's going to signal that for you? Uh, I think everybody walking around with solar panels on their heads. <laughs> no, not really. Uh, actually, I think in a lot of ways, we're already there. Wind power is now the fourth largest source of electricity supply in some parts of the country. It is the cheapest option for new power plants. So cheaper than natural gas, certainly cheaper than coal or nuclear. We now have more than a million homes in the U.S. that have solar power. And in a lot of places, in a lot of states, it is cheaper 
than getting electricity from your utility company. So that's an amazing place to be and a real sign that, that we are there. So there's no turning back. There's no turning back. What states can do is, and the federal government, can make this transition go more quickly or they can make it go more slowly. We're at a time, given pollution, given climate change, given our need for jobs, given our desire for energy security, we're at a time when we want this to go faster, not slower. But it's going to happen. It is happening. It will continue to happen either way. You've been working on clean energy for a number of years now. What are you most optimistic about? I guess I'd say three things. One is the scale of activity. It's amazing to see how far we've come, again, just in the last decade or so, just how quickly some of these technologies have ramped up. And you know, with that come the cost reductions that have brought technologies, made them so much more of a, of a slam dunk, really, for decision makers, whether those are homeowners or businesses or utility companies or states. So that's one piece. The second piece is technological progress in general. I'm an engineer. I, I love the, the techie components of this. You look at what's happened with storage in just the last few years, energy storage. Uh, offshore wind. I took my son and some friends to see the first offshore wind farm in the Western Hemisphere that is off of Block Island in Rhode Island. It's an amazing thing to see, and it is just the start of an incredible amount of great stuff that's going to happen there. And the third thing I guess I'd say is momentum. I mean, if you look at clean energy momentum, that's what our study was about. We've got it. There is momentum all across the U.S. in all kinds of forms. It's an amazing thing to see, and it should give everybody hope for the future. Well, thanks, John. This has been great talking to you. It's nice to end on an optimistic note. I'm hearing that Clean energy is moving forward and there's no stopping it. It's an amazing time, Colleen. Thanks for the chance to talk about it. It's time for Sidelining Science, the latest weird news from an administration that doesn't seem to have much use for the free practice and expression of science. Our correspondent, Katie Love, has the story. In the criminal justice system of the United States, forensic evidence is relied upon, often heavily, to convict people or let them go free. A dedicated team of men and women were assembled to help improve forensic evidence using the power of science. This is their story. Now, if your knowledge of forensics is limited to Law and Order, CSI, and Dexter, you might not know this, but the field is not anywhere near as fail-proof as it appears on TV. In 2009, the National Academy of Sciences found a lack of scientific standards for many forensic methods, from hair samples to fingerprints. It turns out forensic science is in need of a lot of improvements. In some cases, what we think of as infallible evidence, well, isn't. This has resulted in folks being imprisoned for crimes they didn't commit and actual perpetrators to escape prosecution. Scary stuff. So the Department of Justice joined with a lesser known federal agency called the National Institute of Standards and Technology to establish a task force of judges, lawyers, law enforcement, and research scientists to study the field's problems and find solutions. The National Commission on Forensic Science worked together for years and released some really important recommendations. 
such as forensic analysts across the country should have some kind of standardized training and certification. Defense attorneys should be able to see forensic evidence against their clients. Digital forensics should have best practices to follow. And then Attorney General Jeff Sessions pulled the plug on their team on April 10th of this year and announced a new forensics office entirely within the Department of Justice. Here's the rub though. When you house a separate effort solely within a prosecutor's office, the research becomes limited and politically driven. But when faced with experts' concerns, Attorney General Sessions said, I don't think we should suggest that those proven scientific principles that we've been using for decades are somehow uncertain. But that's the whole problem. Many of these methods are not proven. They are uncertain. Meanwhile, we've been using them for decades, and now we're going to keep using them, which has profound consequences for justice and, frankly, for racial and ethnic disparities in the court system. Attorney General Sessions can say that forensic science is settled, but we call this move to disband the commission sidelining science. So that's it for this episode of Got Science. Thanks to John Rogers, lead energy analyst at the Union of Concerned Scientists. Sidelining Science by Katie Love. Music and editing by Brian Middleton. Research and writing by Pamela Worth. Our executive producer is Rich Hayes, and I'm your host, Colleen McDonald. See you next time.